This is a talk by Joel titled "Listening to the Stones." Talk number eight: The Great Perfection, recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, first of all, before you go, your last assignment here is to return your Guru Stone to the land. Do not take it with you. And it's a practice of detachment, so you can be aware of that as you say your final goodbyes. Okay. Now, why don't you put your guru stone out in front of you? A loner guru, my God. What's this society coming to? They <laughs> have a rent a guru. You look at the yellow pages. <laughs> I need a guru for a week. <laughs> That's right, an app on your iPhone. <laughs> What do you expect from a loner girl? <laughs> okay. So we started with this paradigm of the cosmos as a teaching mandala, the way the Tibetans think of it, and as Longchenpa broke it down for us, the teaching mandala is composed of five excellencies. And there's the teacher. There's our teacher right there in front of you, or a loner teacher. And there's the time. Well, the time is now.、Uh, there's the place. The place is here. There's the message, and we've been getting the message from the guru all through this week. Various teachings from the guru about impermanence, about inseparability of form from our consciousness, and so forth. And then there's the audience. That's us. And what is the ultimate message that the Guru Stone has to import? It teaches truth. Remember Longchenpa saying that、uh, it shows everything to be the truth itself. So, what is this truth that's showing us? Well, it's the same in all traditions. Here's what、uh, Lali Shori says: Everything is the one Shiva. There is no such thing as two. And here is Huang Po, Zen master. Nothing is born. Nothing is destroyed. Away with your dualism, your likes and dislikes. Every single thing is just the one mind. And here is Rabia. She says, "O、oh、God." Whenever I listen to the voice of anything you have made—the rustling of trees, the trickling of water, the cries of birds, the flickering of a shadow, the roar of the wind, the song of the thunder—I hear it saying, "God is one." So all these are teachings about non-duality, and the whole spiritual path is. Ultimately, about realizing this truth, awakening to this truth, having a gnosis of this truth. 
and as long as we are deluded, the cosmos is teaching this truth. And then in that sense, it has a goal. The goal is to wake you up. The goal is to get you enlightened. So you look at your stone. That's the stone's purpose in life. But then the question arises, what happens after enlightenment? The divine continues to manifest in form, but now there's no need for teaching. So why is it doing this? Here's what Lali Shori says. Here's how she explains it. O Lali, creation and sustenance, disillusion, concealment and grace are all God's divine play. The whole thing is God's divine play. Falling under delusion is God's divine play. Suffering under delusion is God's divine play. Struggling is God's divine play. Going on a spiritual path is God's divine play. And waking up, realization, enlightenment is all God's divine play. And we can take play in two ways. Play like children and play like a drama, a performance. By the way, maya, which is the Hindu term for the veil of delusion, maya is etymologically related to magic, our word magic. So it's a magic show. So from one point of view, it's deceptive, but from another point of view, it's delightful, like a delightful magic show. Here's Dionysus the Europagite, Christian mystic. He writes, The creator, pre-subsisting superabundantly in the good, did not allow itself to be unproductive, but energized itself in accordance with its own overflowing all-creative power. So you get this image of a fountain, all this creative power that just can't contain itself. It overflows. It can't help it. It's just overflowing all the time. Just this explosion, continuing explosion of creative power. Ibn Arabi says, Indeed, there is naught in the realm of possibility more wonderful than this cosmos, which is in the image of the merciful, and which God created in order that his being might become manifest through its appearance. So this cosmos is a manifestation of the divine. It's a manifestation in form of the formless. You could think of it as the formless contains all the possibilities of this cosmos. But if they're not manifested, they're unknown. I was a hidden treasure who longed to be known. And this is the way the hidden treasure is known. And it continues. And Ibn Arabi goes on and on about this in his writings, how the cosmos never repeats itself. Every single moment of the cosmos, all the appearances, all the phenomena, they're similar to the ones that happened before and similar to the ones that are coming down the pike, but each one is completely unique. This moment, this day is never going to come again. This particular day. It's quite astonishing when you stop to ponder that. We lose track of that, you know. 
we fall into this trap because we're unattentive, we don't notice things, that it's just one damn thing after another, as Churchill said. But, again, it's like a dance where this performance is not like any other performance is going to be. Or music. By the way, this is not just mystics who see the cosmos this way. Listen to the scientist James Jeans, who in the last century, he was a pioneer in uh, developing quantum mechanics and relativistic cosmology. And he says, To my mind, the laws which nature obeys are less suggestive of those which a machine obeys in its motions than those which a musician obeys in writing a fugue or a poet in composing a sonnet. The motions of electrons and atoms do not resemble those of the parts of a locomotive so much as those of the dancers in a cotillion. And in fact, you can search the web for people out there now who are doing things like they're taking the oscillations of a hydrogen atom and then they're uh, interpreting them in terms of music. So you can actually listen to the music of a hydrogen atom or the planets going around the sun. You know, this is an ancient idea. It goes back to Pythagoras, the music of the spheres. Well, there are people actually producing that by mathematically plotting this and then speeding up the cycles and then producing electronic sounds out of it. It's really quite wonderful. So, then the question is, okay, so the cosmos is a great work of art. It's a dance, it's a piece of music, it's a play, whatever you want to think of it. But in any case, why then should it be doing this? And we can ask the question, why does a musician play? Why does a dancer dance? Why does a poet write? And some of you are artistic, musicians and whatnot. Why, why do you do things? I know Vip is a musician. Why do you play music? Gives me great joy. Yeah. You love it? Absolutely. Okay. Why does it give you great joy? Do you have it? It's, it's always new. It's, I don't know, there's a, a freshness. Um, oh, and I lose myself. Ah, very good. Very good. Anybody else have some creative activity? Yes, Jim. That's the same thing I feel like at chemistry lectures. Wow. Oh. It's really, it's, yeah, it's myself, it's, there's just a joy in it. I think the same course of the year, but they're all unique. You know, the, the audience is unique every year. Right. It, it's all special, and I just still love it completely. Certainly, and, and we don't usually think of chemistry as an artistic performance, but have you ever had a great teacher? I mean, everybody usually has had one great teacher, you know, and wasn't it something special, like an artistic performance about that? Yeah. If you remember back, yeah. Yes? Um, I spent a lot of time in the last five years with um, musicians who are improvised, not jazz, but just right. improvised, where we'll get together in a quartet and you might have a flute and a cello, a singer, a drummer, and everybody just takes a breath and it begins when it begins and it ends when it ends. And it's, it's pretty astonishing. And you lose yourself and, and the group becomes like one and it's really pretty magical. Now, let me ask you, especially in this kind of situation, this is similar to jazz, before you begin, do you know what it's going to be like? Oh, uh, no. No music, no nothing. Right. It's just totally whatever right. happens. So it's a kind of a self-discovery. I mean, what comes out is what was in everybody, in a certain sense, but was unmanifest. 
and now it's manifest, and now it's known, right? It wasn't known before. Just That's in the moment, yeah. in the moment, whatever. But you have to really, it's, it's hard at first for a lot of people, but once you, once you get into it, it's just pure joy. This is a perfect analogy for what these mystics are trying to say about the cosmos, about why it's here. It's a self-revelation, a selfless self-revelation. So the God of the mystics is not some engineer sitting up on his throne in the sky tinkering with some toy he made thousands of years ago. The God of the mystics is a performer, a dancer, an artist. And while the dance itself, while the music itself may express different emotions, some of which may be sadness, some of which may be anger, some of which may be nostalgia, poignancy, some that we would consider in uh, everyday life as negative emotions, they are just as much a part of the expression as the joyful ones, aren't they? I mean, sad ballads about how you lost the love of your life are just as valid pieces of music as something that celebrates new love. Isn't that true? And as human beings, we appreciate both. We'll pay money for both. I had a dream I can't resist sharing with you on this retreat. It's one of those things I think it was given to the wrong person. Uh, It's called Einstein the Ballet. And... It was bizarre. It was little sketches of what could become a ballet, you know? And, <laughs> I mean, I have, I have nothing to do with ballet. <laughs> so, uh, only a few little scenes are given, and then, you know, the choreographer is supposed to fill in the rest. But the first part is working in the patent office. You know, Einstein began his career working in the patent office. And this is a Charlie Chaplin that's kind of, you know, do do boo do chomp do 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 chomp And it's kind of, you know, a funny, humorous kind of scene. And, and by the way, the music to this hasn't been written yet. Part of the instructions, you've got to go find some avant-garde composers. Say, and it's going to be a little bit like those music of the spheres I've been telling you about. It's going to be very modern kind of electronic sounds. And then there's a whole sequence of light, of chasing light, because... Einstein, the way he discovered his relativity, he imagines himself riding a light beam and what would it be like? And so these are lasers on the stage and, and the dancers are riding the light. And, you know, it's a really tremendous, creative, energetic, joyful kind of thing. And then there's this big, powerful scene of the bombing of Hiroshima because that's one branch of where his knowledge led to. And I can see the sets in my mind very clearly, these abstract torn, ripped pieces of steel and cement and melting, and the dancers coming out in these horrible Halloween-like costumes of burns and stuff like that, and they're dancing and screaming, and the music gets very discordant, and these lights are flashing like, you know, the flash of the atomic bomb going off. And then finally it ends with a peace dance, because Einstein became a peace advocate. And so it's this nice, you know, kind of... uh, transcendent sort of last scene where we can transcend this, right? So, I woke up from this. I said, I think you got the wrong guy here. <laughs> There's some young choreographer, you know, on Broadway in New York who should have had this dream. Please take it to him. But the reason I'm telling this, not just to brag about some weird dream, 
is the different moods were so clear in this. The comedy, the excitement, the joy of discovery, the horror of Hiroshima, and then the transcendent quality of the last one. And it was all part of the ballet. You couldn't have the ballet with at least those four set pieces. That was like the building blocks the whole ballet was going to be built on. So our lives are like that. And we're always trying to get rid of one of the building blocks of our lives instead of enjoying it as part of the performance. Enjoying it at the level that we enjoy performance. Not that we are feeling sad and that we somehow avoid feeling sad. We feel completely sad. You're supposed to. If you go to a, a, any good performance that's arousing emotions, you're supposed to feel those emotions completely. The point is not to avoid them, actually. The point is to bring them out. The music brings them out. The dance brings them out. Manifest them so we can feel them. So in this revelation of the full range of our experience, of human experience. Yes? Can I comment on your dream? You certainly can. Well, one thought that came to me was that this... In this retreat, you're giving a performance, right? Yes, I am. Like a ballet and it's more like a chemistry lecture, maybe. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> and, and it leads up to this, hopefully, destruction and transcendent light and everything at the end, right? And moreover, what's the central theme of this, of this retreat? It's one stone, right? Yes. Well, the German word for stone is stein. And the German word for one is Einstein. Oh, Einstein. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. McFarland. <laughs> you were well worth $100 an hour that I <laughs> Very good. That's very interesting. I had never occurred to me. Hmm. Okay. So. Here's uh, some other mystics uh, from other traditions. Here's Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. The world is strung on me like pearls on a string. I am the flavor in the water, the radiance in the sun and moon. I am the scent of promise in the earth and the burning strength in the fire, the life in all creatures. I am the understanding of those who understand and the majesty of the majestic. My shape is unmanifest, but I pervade the world. Now, compare that to the Spirit of God speaking through Hildegard of Bingen, a Christian saint. I am that living and fiery essence of the divine substance that flows in the beauty of the fields. I shine in the water, I burn in the sun and moon and the stars. Mine is that mysterious force of the invisible wind. I sustain the breath of all living. I breathe in the verdure and in the flowers, and when the waters flow like living things, it is I. I am that force that lies hid in the winds. From me they take their source, and as a man may move because he breathes, so doth a fire burn but by my blast. All these live because I am in them, and I am of their life. I am wisdom. 
Isn't that the same spirit talking? You know, if I told you, well, this one I just read was what Krishna told Arjuna, and what Krishna told Arjuna was the spirit speaking to Hildegard of Bingen, you couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell the difference. Here's what Ananda Moyamas says. He alone is, therefore he himself speaks to himself for the sake of his own revelation. So here's the image of more like poetry. The cosmos is the divine speaking to the divine. Ibn Arabi says, he is at once the self-manifesting subject and object of that manifestation. Again, the non-dual ground is both the subject, the appreciator, the consciousness of the cosmos and the cosmos. The performer and the audience. Like maybe listening to your own music as it's coming out that you didn't know what was going to come out before you played it. So, if the divine is both the subject and the object of the cosmos, that means you are the subject. You are that appreciator, the divine appreciator, and you are what is appreciated. So we can look at our stone again. And first of all, we can see it's a work of art. You may not regard it as a work of art, but God regards it as a work of art. It is completely unique. There's never going to be another stone exactly like this stone. And what's it doing here? It's revealing the creative power of the ground out of which it sprang. And look at them all. And yes, you certainly can have a loner. If you lose that, you get another one. If you lose that, you get another one. And by the way, you'll get it whether you want it or not. Everybody must get stoned. <laughs> can't really, really experience this as though we are deluded into thinking we are some separate self in here in this skull looking out through these eyes at that weird, strange object out there. And, and instead of really looking at it, what we're looking at is all our thoughts and worries about it. Uh, well, I don't know. I can't get this. Something must be wrong with me. So that's the, the whole key here. This is why this emphasis on selflessness, surrendering self, giving up self, seeing through self. I don't care how it's put, and different traditions and teachers will put it differently. But that is the key. That is the obstacle. That's what's in the way. That's what stands in the way. Otherwise, you would be like Hildegard of Bingen. You'd be walking around, and the whole cosmos would be as it is to her. An open book that never closes. So the trick is, how do we get rid of not 
any self. There is no real self here. How do we get rid of the delusion? How do we get out of this duality? Yeah. Yes. Well, here's what Meister Eckhart says. You should love God as he is a non-God, a non-spirit, a non-person, a non-image, but as he is a pure, unmixed, bright one, separated from all duality. And in that one, we should eternally sink down out of something into nothing. Now we're getting to really the highest practice here, which, you know, how do you do that? <laughs> well, you know. I sure will. By the way, let me give a little background. He's addressing people who think God is some object, a big daddy object, grand object, wonderful object, but some object out there, and they are here, some subject. And they are, there's a duality. They're worshiping God, and they're asking God for Cadillacs and things, and so there's this duality. So he's saying, you should love God as he is a non-God, a non-spirit, a non-person, a non-image, but as he is a pure, unmixed, bright one, separated from all duality. And in that one, we should eternally sink down out of something into nothing. And Dr. Wolf explains why. He who has thus become as nothing in his own right then is prepared to become possessed by wisdom herself. The completeness of the self-emptying is the precondition to the realization of unutterable fullness. This is Ananda Moyama. And I, again, I want you to notice that they're all saying the same thing from a different angle. Here's Ananda Moyama's description. In him should one become engrossed, lost, affixed, immersed, stripped of everything. And then this whole world will be seen as the outer expression of the inner reality, as the one himself, the field of his creative activity. So we're going to try to follow Ananda Moyama's instruction here. It's really an instruction for practice. Oh yes, I am. I'm going to read it just before we do it here. I'm just going to give you a few suggestions first. We're going to do three rounds. And my suggestion would be, in the first round, you take the time to enter spacious awareness. You go through all the fields, just like we've been doing on the whole retreat, until you get to spacious awareness. You enter spacious awareness, and then you try to implement the instruction. Because if you have an undistracted mind, I think you'll have a better chance of actually starting to experience what she's talking about. Once you've done that, however, then if you feel like you want to do it, each time we sit down for a new round, by all means, go ahead. But if you feel like you have either immersed yourself in the divine to some extent, as she's described, or you feel like to go back and start from the beginning and go through 
the fields and enter spacious awareness would be a distraction, then skip it. Don't do it. So, I'm going to read her instruction and then we will plunge into it. In him should one become engrossed, lost, affixed, immersed, stripped of everything, and then this whole world will be seen as the outer expression of the inner reality, as the one himself, the field of his creative activity. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Okay, we're going to um, hold the conversation about our experiences now because, first of all, day after tomorrow, we're all going to get a chance to tell everything. And also, we're getting to the point where this is no longer precise instruction, so our experiences or questions about it and so forth aren't going to add as much to our ability to do the practice. We just have to kind of feel our way through here. So we're like you know, uh, blind people in a maze and feeling our way around. So, we're just going to plunge on. We said every moment is just as much of a divine self-disclosure as every other moment. And that means no moment is privileged over any other moment. This moment is as good as the last moment and as good as the moment's going to come. So, it's like we have a perfect dancer. A dancer who never misses a step. So there are no mistakes in the dance as the dance unfolds. And there's no better uh, section of the dance than the previous section. Here's how Wang Po puts it. That which is before you is it. In all its fullness, utterly complete. That which is before you is it. Get your guru stone out here. 
You've been waiting for enlightenment? That's it. Complete. Nothing missing. No imperfections to correct. Here's how the Quran puts it. You see not in the creation of the all-merciful any imperfection. Return your gaze. Do you see any rift? Return your gaze again, and again it will come back to you, dazzled and weary from its futile attempts to find some flaw. So, we gaze around us, we gaze out at the cosmos, we gaze within, and what the Quran's saying is you're not going to find any flaw inside, outside, anywhere. Now, it's true that we, in our language, talk about imperfections and mistakes and errors and whatnot, but we always do so in relation to some relative imaginary standard that we set up. We set up an imaginary standard and then we can find things don't live up to it or they violate it or something like that. So, for example, uh, you can have a misspelled word. If you misspell your word, it used to be, you know, somebody would come along and correct you. Now you misspell your word on your computer and the computer corrects you. Depending on your program, it'll either tell you you've misspelled the word or it'll just automatically put in the correctly spelled word even if you intentionally misspelled it. And then you have to fight with your computer. <laughs> Megan, did you want to say something? That says all. Yeah. Is that a Zen comment? There's more. Oh, okay. Yesterday, when things were going great, and I felt like I could kind of, kind of, Give away some things and, and release. Then I remember to do Tonglen for all people that had been confused and were confused that they could see the light. And then I felt like I had to give up my seeing clearly so, so that I could sink back into confusion and boy I did not want to so I see that as fault with myself that's fault with yourself yeah well that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about you set up an imaginary standard for yourself and then you failed to live up to it I didn't set it up who set it up those damn Buddhists <laughs> it's all their fault <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they did, but you bought into it. They trapped you. In any case, it's an imaginary standard. I'm not saying we shouldn't have imaginary standards, by the way. I'm just saying we should recognize they're imaginary. And if we recognize they're imaginary, we can admit to not living up to them, but without suffering. Because we know the truth. The truth is, wherever you send your gaze, you will find no flaw. There's no imperfections. If you make a mathematical error calculating something, that's only an error because we have axioms and rules of operations. And uh, according to that, well, we made a mistake. 
Or if you go to the store and you want to buy a cup and you're looking at the cups and one has a chip in it, and you go up to the clerk and say, look, this has got a little chip in it, I'll give you half price for it. It's only because you have a standard in your mind of what a perfect cup is. And if the clerk also has a standard and everybody has that standard, they might give you half off on it. But whenever we have a judgment like that of an imperfection, a flaw, look at it and you'll see that it is in relation to some standard, it's a flaw. In and of itself, there's no flaw. In and of itself, it's neither a flaw nor not a flaw. The whole duality here is imposed on experience as we've been examining through this whole retreat. Here's what God tells Catherine of Siena about this. With my wisdom, I have organized and I govern all the world with such order that nothing is lacking and nothing could be added to it. Nothing is lacking in it and nothing could be added to it to make it more perfect. Now, this is interesting. Catherine Siena, I believe she was 16th century. Anyway, she's a Christian mystic. Maybe earlier, 15th century. Listen to what Zen master Sung Song says. The way is perfect, like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Isn't that the same thing that God told Catherine of Siena? The same thing, almost again, word for word. So, look at the Guru's stone. Is there anything lacking in the Guru's stone? Is there anything in excess? Well, this one's got too many bumps on it. I can tell that right away. <laughs> what would you add to your Guru's stone to make it perfect? Now notice, if you wanted an arrowhead, you might alter it. You say, ah, well, it kind of looks like an arrowhead, but not white. Quack, 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 quack. And then you got an arrowhead. But that's because you're forming it to an ideal image in your mind of what an arrowhead should be. But in and of itself, what's it lacking? What would you add to it? The point of these teachings is the world ain't broke. You ain't broke. There ain't nothing to fix. It is all perfect. And the only thing to be done, and I put done around quotes, is to recognize that. This is why Longchenpa, who we keep coming back to, he's one of the really great, great masters, he says, ordinary perception, unobstructed and liberated from the beginning, is the view of the natural great perfection. Let's go through this. Ordinary perception. That means just as you see things now. Just as you hear things now. Just as you touch and taste and smell things now. Ordinary perception. Not perception in some heightened state of calm abiding or deep samadhi or something like that. I mean, that's ordinary too in a, in a certain sense. But we don't have to have that right now. Right now, unobstructed and liberated from the beginning... What does that mean? Unobstructed and liberated from the beginning. 
there's nothing to liberate because there's no actual obstruction. This is the view of the natural great perfection. And as I said, this translation of whatever the Tibetan word by view is misleading in our terms because it's not like a point of view. It's another way of talking about realization or gnosis. This is the realization of the great perfection. So, have any of you uh, had this experience as creative people doing something like music or your chemistry class or whatever, where it just flows without any, even by a relative standard, imperfection, without any obstruction. It just flows out. Yeah. Are you... Can I go over an example? What? Yeah, go ahead. Practicing Tai Chi. You know, the, the whole goal is to have the beginning to the end of the form flow like a river and completely without a flaw. Unobstructed, right? Unobstructed. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, it's like what Viv said. It's when I disappear. Yes, ah, there's a big clue there, right. In a circle once, it was just some compositional thing singing, and you know, there's always the judge, and then all of a sudden it was over, and I just, but I didn't realize. It was kind of like that uh, saxophone player. Yes. It was done, it was like, I did it, but I wasn't there, and so. So, that's a very big clue. Where does our sense of obstruction come from? If we get out of the way, then we get this experience of unobstructed flow, right? But uh, we can become even more precise about this. So first of all, look at your stone. Just look at it. And now, uh, let me go back to his quote here. Ordinary perception, unobstructed and liberated from the beginning. Ordinary perception is unobstructed. At this perceptual level. Now, look at the stone. Is there any obstruction between the visual phenomena and the perception? Even if I had cataracts, which I don't have anymore, but I did have, and the stone appeared hazy, in a relative sense I could say, I've got an obstruction dock, can you remove this and fix this? That's based on a standard I have that the stone should be clear visually. But even with the cataracts, the fuzzy appearance of the stone is unobstructed. And if I tap the stone, the sound is unobstructed. Again, if I'm deaf, then in a relative sense I could say, well, my sound is obstructed, can you fix that? But then there simply is no sound, it's unobstructed. And the, the feel of the stone? If you want to go ahead and smell them, taste. Even the thoughts, the imagination about the stone arise unobstructed. That, what an ugly stone you are. Well, nothing obstructed that thought. Just arose and it went. What a beautiful stone you are. <sighs> Whatever I can think about the stone, as thought, it just arises and it passes without any obstruction anywhere.
So we're going to spend the rest of the afternoon doing something very simple. We're just going to recognize that everything arises in an unobstructed way and in a perfect way, in the sense that nothing needs to be added to anything and there's nothing about anything that's in excess. So again, what I suggest you do is during the first round, first of all, uh, spend some time in concentration to calm attention, and then you expand it through the six fields, and as you go, start to notice how things arise in those fields, how phenomena arise in those fields, and how they arise without any obstruction, and they pass without any obstruction, and that they don't need to be altered in any way. And as you do that, and as you expand your attention till finally it fills the total field of consciousness itself, and you're just resting in that spacious awareness, simply allow all the phenomena that does arise and pass away to do so, just observing this unobstructive nature of it. And this quality of perfection it displays in and of itself. And even if your mind creates judgments, fine, don't worry about it. That's not a problem. That ain't broke. Just look at the judgment and see how that arises unobstructed and perfect. Yeah? This uh, idea of being unobstructed, would you say that's like uh, how this is just effortlessly here? Effortlessly, very good way to put it. It's all effortlessly here. But again, look at your stone. Thank you. That's uh, another important angle on it. That's how you put it in your book. Did I? <laughs> the doorknob effortlessly. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. <laughs> to be taught from your own book by your own student. <laughs> it's amazing. But... Again, just look at it. Just look. It's effortlessly appearing. You, you don't see it straining and struggling to, to make its appearance. And you don't see it sitting there quaking, you know, self-consciously because it's up in front of all these people. It just has this effortless quality. And in the meditation, I think you'll discover all phenomena has this effortless quality. And the way it appears, it expresses itself, and then it disappears in its own perfect time. So, okay. Any other questions about the instruction? Just about the instruction. Yes, Jim. So, I keep on thinking, so, so I won't see, see anything struggling. What? I, I won't see anything struggling. Well, 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 but I, I, you look and see if you see anything struggling. I'm not going to tell you whether you see something struggling or not. I don't see anything struggling. You might, and then it'll be very interesting when you report that on Sunday to us. How everything struggled to come into existence. Okay? All right. Uh, here we go.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Let me say, maybe most of you have gotten this by now, but what we're doing is we sort of hopefully come up to the edge of the abyss here, and now we're kind of circling around the abyss, you know, and we're looking at it from different angles, and occasionally we jump over it, and we're hoping somebody's going to fall in, you know. So you jump over, oh, and I didn't fall in, so move around to a different angle, you jump over it, and no. But, you know, if you're going to fall in the abyss, you can't do it from down at the bottom of the hill. You have to come up to the top of the hill and hang out at the rim. And that's the only way, the chance you can have of falling in. So, this is what we're doing. Okay. There's a story about Rabia. She lived in Baghdad. And in the summer in Baghdad, it gets very hot there. And people like to go up on their roof in the evening to get away from the heat that's built up in their houses. So, everybody in Baghdad's on their roofs. And she's up there. And there's a guy next door, just on the roof right over here, and every night he prays uh, out loud. And he says, O Lord, open the door that I may come to you. O Lord, open the door that I may come to you. O Lord, open the door that I may come to you. And this goes on night after night. He's very devout, so he prays for hours and hours, you know. And she's listening to this, and finally she yells over to the other roof. She says, O oh, idiot, the door is not shut. <laughs> there's another story that uh, on the surface of it seems quite different but it's actually the gist is the same now this comes from the Tibetan tradition and it's told by a monk named Noishal Lungtog I think that's how you pronounce it anyway it sounds very Jewish doesn't it Noishal <laughs> Moishu, what are you doing here? <laughs> anyway, he uh, spent years and years studying Tantra and Dzogchen with his teacher, Abu Palchul Rinpoche. And one day, um, I guess he was out walking one evening, it must have been evening. Uh, he's out walking and Abu says to him, Hey, did you say you don't know the essence of mind? And I answered, Yes, sir, I don't. And Abu said, oh, there's nothing not to know. Come here. So I went to him. And he said, lie down as I'm lying down and look at the sky. And I did so. And he said, do you see the stars in the sky? Yes. Do you hear the dogs barking in the monastery? Yes. Well, that's the great perfection. At that moment, I arrived at the certainty of realization from within. 
I had been liberated from the fetters of it is and it is not. I had realized the primordial wisdom, the naked union of emptiness and intrinsic awareness. So, what is it about, you know, the stars in the sky, the dogs barking? Sound effects comes with the story here. (laughs) How is it possible? Well, it's possible because we've already heard Ananda Moyamai say, in the whole universe, in all states of being, in all forms is he. All names are his names. All shapes, his shapes. All qualities, his qualities. And all modes of existence are truly his. So in other words, the door is not shut. The door is wide open. And the stars are the primordial wisdom, the barking dogs in the monastery, the lamp fixtures here, the floor, the ceiling, the people around this room. It's right here. There's another way of putting this. Everything is practicing enlightenment right now. And that's what Zen Master Dogen says. A Buddha's practice is to practice in the same manner as the entire universe and all beings. If it is not the practice of all beings, it is not Buddha's practice. So let's look at the stone. The stone is doing Buddhist practice. Look at it carefully now. Don't look up in the sky there. The sky is doing Buddhist practice too, but we want to see how the stone does it. How does the stone do Buddhist practice? Effortlessly. Well, that's yes, that's one very good observation. It's effortless, isn't it? Flawlessly too, right? It's absolutely flawless, the Buddha's practice here. How about the posture of the stone? Could it be improved? Could it be added to? Changed? Make it more Buddha's practice? What about uh, distraction? You think the stone is distracted? What else? Anything else about the stone? Does stone get bored with the practice? If the stone did get bored with the practice, would that still be Buddha's practice? So, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do Buddha's practice. And the instruction is, practice in the same manner as your stone and all beings in the universe. What could be more simple than that? Yes, put your stone out where you can see it so it can model Buddhist practice for you. Okay, here we go. 
Rain on the mountain, thunder in the north, the sun rises in the east, what is there to teach?